So today I'm joined by Michaela Bohem for a special Thomas Fire interview. The Thomas Fire is the largest wildfire in California state history. This fire has touched Michaela's life and we're going to discuss what that's meant, how Michaela has used her training and life of practice to face the kind of life-changing adversity that we all hope to avoid, but realistically can happen to any of us at any time. Michaela has an extensive background both clinically and academically in psychology and counselling, having received her degrees in Jungian psychology and forensic psychology from the University of Vienna. She has over 25 years of clinical experience working one-on-one -on -one in private practice. She was the co-founder of a drug rehab in Malibu and worked in forensics. In addition to her professional background, she is the lineage holder of a woman's tantric lineage of Kashmir Shaivism, having begun her education at 16 years old with her teacher. Michaela teaches workshops internationally and still maintains a very impressive client roster of private clients, including movie stars, rock stars, and other very high-performing individuals. So, Michaela, thanks for the conversation. Mm -hmm. so, Michaela, can you tell us about the fires in California? What's the basic situation and how have they affected you? Well, as you were saying, this is the biggest fire in California history and it swept through uh, my area and burnt my house down. So that's the situation. Uh, it burnt for, it's still burning actually. I think it's now 95% contained three weeks later. So it's uh, um, still affecting the area. We're just coming back to a place where the air quality is bearable. And uh, in my direct neighborhood, about 130 houses burned down. Mm -hmm. And perhaps you could talk a little bit about your house. It's, it's of course, your house, but it's also where you teach a lot of workshops. You have a farm um, with many, many rescue animals and so on. So what um, was the damage? Well, uh, it's not only my house, but it was essentially the my absolute dream place, you know, the place that... I envisioned uh, that I would live on and uh, you know have my animals and of course that's where we teach you and I and uh, uh, you know where people come and so it's not just a house it's a property it has acreage it has orchards it had lots of uh, animals still has but uh, I lost uh, most of my chickens most of my ducks all of my tur turtles and tortoises and some of the dogs and cats. So it's been very um, tough and not easy to deal with. Mm -hmm. And just to give some people an idea of the sort of devastation a fire like that could cause, um, it was a combination of, of very hot weather, the fire itself and the Santa Ana winds, isn't that right? Yeah. Creating these f firewalls of, uh, how tall were they? <clears throat> About 50 feet, they say. I mean, the, the uh, you know, y you can think of a fire and it was for kind of, it was a bit funny because my parents told some of their friends in Austria, and of course in Austria we don't have fires like that, and some woman said to my mother, well that's stupid, why didn't you just call the fire department, they would have put it out. <laughs> and, it's a very Austrian Yeah, thing. very Austrian thing to say, um, but uh, of course it's not like that, of course no one in Austria or for that matter, me, have ever um, seen what it looks like when 60 mile an hour winds whip up a firewall uh, that just consumes everything in its path. And uh, at some point, uh, all the, uh, the mountains around us were on fire and you could see these huge walls of fire just eat up everything at such rapid pace. And that particular night when uh, my house burned down, um, the winds were so f were going so fast that they said that the fire moved an acre a minute. Mm. So uh, just unbelievable devastation. And the thing, of course, that is hard to understand uh, and was hard to understand for me when I saw the house. It's not just the house. It's not just your house burns down. It kills everything in its path, all the trees, all the orchards. Um, the barns, um, every uh, every bit of the property is just blackened and destroyed and um, there's nothing left but bent metal and a foot of rubble and that's it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, the car the cars were totally melted. Your stove, um, which is for cooking, uh, your iron stove was totally warped and collapsed in. So it must have been a tremendous heat moving at a, tre a tremendous speed. And you actually weren't at the house at the time of uh, the fire. We just finished up um, our year of teaching, in fact. Right. It was the morning after our final day when we were about to fly off. You to Austria to see your parents and me back home to England. And uh, when we discovered about all this. So from there, you went uh, more or less directly back. And so tell us a bit about that process. And we'll get on a, in, in a moment as to how your um, training and your background and your, you know, because, you know, it's, it's interesting the way you've handled it with quite a lot of grace and determination. And you've been very productive in the face of all that loss because you lost almost every, well, actually everything you owned. Everything from, I owned except for what was in a suitcase. And you traveled pretty light that trip. <laughs> yes. So, Sadly, yeah. yes. Yeah. My favorite uh, traveling jacket. Brand. But I think people can learn something actually. Uh, <laughs> and people have been asking, you know, uh, for you to talk about this, but people I think could learn something from the way you've gone about it. Um, but anyway, so what was that uh, process like? Are you leaving Europe and you have to fly back to California and so on? Well, it was devastating, but it wasn't. It wasn't yet um, reality. Had right? you hear about it, and and uh, I mean, you were with me when I heard that the house was burning, and uh, it's hard to believe and it's hard to understand. And of course, I'm very visual, so in my whole memory and my whole way of processing is visual. So um, I hadn't seen the devastation yet. So in my uh, mine, the house and everything I owned was still intact, so to speak. Mm. And then when I landed in LA after, you know, 30 hours of a pretty heavy duty stress and rebooking flights and making my way from Amsterdam to Munich, from Munich to Salzburg, slept there, drove back from Salzburg to Munich, flew from M Munich to Gatwick and then from Gatwick to LA. And then I hired a car service to take me to Ojai. And of course, the roads in and out of the area I lived in were blocked and closed and nobody was allowed to go in. And so after you know, a very, very long day of travel and a very long drive through thick, just horrible smoke uh, with fire right and left of the road, uh, we made it to the roadblock and I had to talk my way into uh, the area where I live. Uh, which was completely off limits and mandatory evacuation. So I had to use every bit of skill, force and determination to talk my way into uh, the area. And I did. And I arrived at the house at around eight in the evening or nine in the evening. It was pitch black and roaring crazy winds. And uh, it was very, very uh, scary because the whole the hills behind the house all the way up to the very top of the topa topas was on fire and all and you can't of course it's dark so all you see is fire and you don't know how far it is away and um it was very low visibility and everyone had evacuated the area except for my direct neighbors and dion my husband and a few other people who um, didn't get out in time and so um the first four or five days we had no electricity um we had of course we had no food or anything uh, for that matter and uh, the neighbors all the few neighbors who were there all pitched together and we went and emptied out freezers and fridges of people who weren't home and um people would pitch in their supplies so that we would eat and we would eat together and have meals together and that's essentially how it started uh and you know, I've been up here ever since. It's been three weeks, pretty much exactly three weeks. And uh, it's just a daily um, odd occurrence to see everything that I've ever owned flattened to a foot of rubble. Mm -hmm. And I just arrived last night and, um, and already a couple of weeks after the uh, incident um, that your teaching space survived. And the guest cottage survived. Yeah. Uh, although everything else, all the other outbuildings and the main house itself were destroyed. So and I'm, I'm getting here and I'm seeing already you've ordered a complete stock of workshop supplies <laughs> and you're preparing yes. the new teaching space. And we're, we're basically good to go yeah. to start teaching you know, yeah. right away, basically. Okay. So what 
was your uh, game plan coming into that? Because, you know, you talk a lot about people, how they react to threatening situations. You're talking about fight, flight, freeze, and maybe outline a bit of that. But, you know, what are some of the common uh, uh, ways people deal? You've seen all these sorts of people here having lost everything. Mm. People are dealing in a variety of ways. What are some of the ways people are approaching it, um, some more successfully than others? And what was your game plan uh, when you finally got to the house? Well, I think I got a little bit sidetracked there when we talked about how was it arriving. I mean, once I saw the house, it was incredibly shocking. It was just, it wasn't just the house, it was coming into an area that was a complete disaster area. And you see these things in movies, right? You see, you know, the likes of, uh, you know, I mean, several male action movie stars uh, walking through deserted towns with heavy smoke and total destruction, right? That's a Hollywood movie mainstay. Yeah. But when you actually end up in that scenario and you can't go outside without a, a mask to, because you can barely breathe and everything's covered in soot and, and ash, it's, it's very shocking. It's very shocking on the system. Fire is also very shocking on the system, meaning you go into total fight or flight. And... A lot of people did flight also because the men, the evacuations were mandatory. So a lot of people just got out of there. And then some people, including my neighbors, and uh, by default, because I came, uh, you know, two days after the fire, we went into fight. And it was quite, um, it was interesting because there were a few situations where you could tell that people were about to start fighting, actually physically fighting. Each other. Yeah, because in, in, in moments where the tension would just rise very high and you could, and it was mostly men up here. There were a few women, but it was mostly men and there was a very high fight response in most people. And thankfully, most people uh, did channel it into being very productive. We, we spent a lot of time putting out hotspots. Dion and our friend John, who is a vet uh, and is also uh, my vet, you know, for all the large animals, drove around and uh, gave people reports if their houses had burned down or not and helped with animals and all those kind of things. So most people channeled that intense fight reaction into doing something, uh, you know, and attacking things in, in, a, in a productive way. But there were certainly moments where people almost came to blow. And there were some um, odd situations a bit later when people were allowed back up here. But I've also seen people just completely freeze and you see it uh, now still that there's a lot of shock and trauma and inability to move forward or do much because of the kind of the strong freeze that comes with something like that. And for myself, I can definitely say that when I landed and ended up in, you know, what really looked like a war zone, my body certainly went into fight. I, I didn't allow for freeze to happen because I have enough practice. And as you well know, because I teach about this all the time, when we teach uh, nonlinear movement teacher trainings, keeping the body moving prevents freeze if you know what you're doing. And I did that the whole way on the plane. I essentially spent eight hours on the plane doing subtle nonlinear movement. And I also read on the plane about um, grief. There's a, an amazingly good book by Martin Prechtel uh, that's called um, On Grief and Praise. It has some other title as well, but um, which I don't recall right now. And that really helped because um, uh, I could I could keep myself from freezing, but I certainly went into quite intense. Uh, fight mode, meaning, you know, get going, get moving, don't stop, um, and and deal with it and, and attack it head on. People have that shock, whether it's an un, you know, a serious diagnosis, you know, when you're sitting across from your doctor and they say, okay, you know, they dropped the bombshell and life's not the same afterwards. Mm. Or, you know, in this case, you're in a natural disaster of some kind, you lose things or there's a death. Maybe you could talk a little bit about fight, flight, freeze. You know, what what are they, and why is this nonlinear movement on? Why is movement have some sort of positive effect mm. uh, on, on on unfreezing the freeze and so on? 
Yeah, I mean, to go very quickly into this, fight or flight is pretty well known in the way that we have a we have a nervous system that is geared towards survival. So when in an actual or perceived dangerous situation, the body kicks in and essentially shuts down the thinking and planning mind and takes over. And the the classic signs of uh, you know fight or flight is the the heightened pulse, the rapid heartbeat, the sweating, the tunnel vision, the output of the adrenaline. And then with that, of course, comes the ability to either fight something full on or run as fast as one can. And that's a pretty useful mechanism for human beings uh, as a matter of survival for millions of years. And that particular mechanism can apply in an actual situation like this one, where it is, of course, very appropriate, can also apply in a situation that's more mind-based, where the, because the mind doesn't know the difference between a real threat and an imagined threat. So your negative thinking can cause the same fight-or-flight reaction than a fire can, uh, which is hard to understand sometimes, but true. So in fight-or-flight, it's pretty easy to detect because you have all these symptoms that feel like a panic attack in the, in the classic sense. Um, and that those particular symptoms though allow you to function optimally for the condition of not thinking about stuff but doing things, moving moving towards uh, the enemy to fight, so to speak, or run away from the threat as fast as one can with all the adrenaline in the system. Freeze is a bit different because freeze is a, a mechanism that essentially shuts you down so that you can hunker down and go undetected. It's said, there's varying research on that, but it's said that it's more common in women than in men because biologically speaking, it was the women, the children who had to duck into the undergrowth and sit it out while the men went and fought. And so um, uh, the freeze response is strongly associated with the vagus nerve, which calms down uh, the pulse and the breathing and, and actually depresses it. So freeze in many people looks like they're actually fine. It looks like they're calm and collected and quite zen about things. But when you look closer, they're actually immobilized to varying degrees, very lightly from just a bit unresponsive, a little bit less blinking or reaction, all the way to fully catatonic. So there's a whole... Um, variety of, of options there. Freeze can be uh, something that's just become habitual or it can be situational, but in either way, you're not capable of doing the thing that the body knows how to do in a fight or flight, after a fight or flight response, which is shake and tremble and allow um, the, the, the shock and the, the trauma to leave the system which is what we're built to for. And when you see it in animals, like if you see a zebra that just escaped a lion, they'll stand and shake, 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 shake. And then at some point they're done and they just move on with their life. So movement um, is a way to induce the natural release mechanism of the body and uh, create equilibrium, not only hormonally and adrenally, but also mentally and emotionally. And so nonlinear is one of the modalities that you can use to unfreeze the body. Which is a method you developed. Of... Which is a method I developed, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and um, so you advocate actually, and, you know, I've seen you do this in situations where you've, where you've had a, you know, something happening, um, deliberately moving, say, your fingers, wriggling your toes, that sort of thing. It doesn't have to be, you know, some special... Uh, way of moving, does it? Just no. even wriggling the fingers and squeezing the toes when you're under a lot of stress or, yeah. or you're in a confrontation or there's something like that can restore a lot of that cognitive function that you lose from those stress responses. Yeah, or just slight wriggling of your behind in the seat, moving the spine, uh, feeling the feet, where you can feel your feet and you can feel um, your seat. That helps greatly reconnect with the body. And when the body is activated, the body can um, activate its natural genius and release these things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're talking about the range of freezes and at that extreme end, 
dissociation. Mm-hmm. You know, people just checking out totally. Yeah. And not, you know, not really remembering what they did or not remembering the, the times after it happens in trauma, traumatic situations. Yeah. And when you're able to get back in the body, uh, you're able to, you're you're able to sort of think better, take more productive action, uh, and this sort of thing, isn't it? Right. Not only about releasing, also about effective action. If there is an effective action that can be taken. Yes. Yeah. Or at least all of that, right? Releasing, allowing the body to uh, come back into equilibrium, uh, becoming effective where your whole body and your mind can be involved and it's not one or the other. Uh, And then in the long run, you know, sometimes it's perfectly all right to be a bit frozen, but at least you know that you are and you know that when you can, you'll deal with it. So there's a recognition aspect to it as well. So are you you still doing movement uh you still deliberately engaging in that is there still a danger of freeze sticking around or settling in even after the initial shock of a trauma oh yeah i mean you went there with me this morning right every time i see the house it's fresh It, it it's not like oh you know i've seen it because in my mind the house reloads freshly as still existing anytime i don't see it right it's an it's an interesting thing because I'm so visual and also I'm next door and I'm home and so I need something and I have um, what I call a phantom possession pain Uh right so you know I had a hangnail so I go oh I need a nail clipper oh yeah and then in my mind the drawer in my bathroom that no longer exists forms itself with the nail clipper exactly where I put it before it's always at because you know I'm also as you know very orderly so things have a place and that place reloads in my mind and then the next thing that happens is oh shit it's gone so it's a constant appearing and disappearing of um, reality as it used to be and no longer is which is quite um, challenging to say the least that's going to make me cry. <laughs> so it's a constant having to keep myself from going there. And every time I see the house, it's it's as fresh a shock as the first time. It actually gets worse over time, not better necessarily. Because um, as uh, life normalizes in a certain way, uh, you know, I just go about my day and then it happens. Then I see it, and then it's like, oh, shit. So uh, to answer your question, I have to constantly work with it. I work with it last thing before I go to bed. I do formal nonlinear before I go to bed, and I sit and meditate before I go to bed. And I have to step down, so I usually have a bath, then do some nonlinear, then take all kinds of herbal supplements and adrenal support, then sit and then go to bed. And... In the morning, the first thing I do when I wake up is nonlinear, uh, laying down in bed and uh, taking the time to feel my whole body and scan and to the best of my ability, unwind it. And then once I've done that, I get up and I make lists. I have, as you know, I'm the queen of lists. So every morning I make a fresh list and every morning I write about the things that come up and and occur to me and make notes and on my dreams I have very specific dreams that have the same theme pretty much every night so I have to work with it every day all day but as you were saying the uh, earlier one of the first things I did uh, so that I could cope is I grounded myself in the things that mean a lot to me uh, which is teaching of course and the animals and um beauty right which has been super important you know the turning towards beauty away from the destruction not to whitewash the destruction but to have a a place to to look and to be and to feel that has beauty and I'll talk about that in a second but it's a it's a constant having to deal with uh, finding places that I still have ground because the ground is pretty much gone in the normal reality of me living in the house that I loved so much. At the same time, not whitewashing it or glossing over it. And at the same time, also caring for my remaining animals. And, uh, you know, we had to redo fences very quickly. And 
you know, all the things that come with dealing with destruction. We're not even talking about dealing with insurances who don't really pay for fences and, you know, all those kind of things. With just making sure everybody was cared for and all living things were cared for, including the few trees that survived who, that needed water, but there's no electricity and the pumps are broken and blah, blah, blah. So it's, it's an endless cycle of caring for the things that lived, caring for myself in the sense that I don't bypass, but also don't succumb. And uh, then using those things and turning them towards something. And the, the things I'm turning them towards is, of course, our next you know, set of teaching events and that's been really really good because of you know the first things we're doing is new men's and women's groups lineage women's work and uh, and some teacher trainings and non-linear teacher training as a matter of fact the second part so using everything that i'm working with as a kind of a grist for the mill towards what we're going to be teaching in january and february and that's been really really useful and uh very very good because i can point it towards something and make it mean something outside of myself as a as a giving of that experience into the teaching and that's been very good and so yeah the first thing i did before i did anything else was i ordered new teaching supplies and new beautiful uh blankets and zafus and yoga mats and all of those things and kitted out the studio we're going to be teaching in and uh, made it so that when teaching starts it's an incredibly pleasing and um, pleasant space so that there is beauty in the middle of all of that destruction and so that the experience can be used and taught and that's that's been really what um, has been anchoring me yeah you're, you're touching on a lot of uh, strategies there actually and um, tools and it would be, might be interesting to touch on some of those you know you've talked already about nonlinear and you know as you mentioned we have trained lots of nonlinear teachers and we won't go into it people are interested in nonlinear I'll put the link in the show notes yeah it's a whole modality uh, you can you can see it on the website and there's probably someone near you anyway that's uh, is, is qualified now it's qualified a lot of teachers in that modality but you know you're talking there about uh, in addition to the movement, you're talking about what I thought you had said, journaling of some kind. You're talking about dream work, which of course is a staple of your union training. Um, you're talking about beautifying, you're talking about having meaning or finding some sort of productive way forward mm. um, without uh, glossing over the reality of the loss or without pretending it's not bad or it's not painful or it's not sad and, and without diminishing it. Mm. It's quite a tightrope, it seems, between sort of getting on with things and, but at the same time, allowing yourself to feel the impact and, and you also talked a bit about meditation when you say sitting I think you mean sitting meditation mm -hmm. you know and it's funny I've got here and I expected to see a bit of a war zone and of course it looks like a war zone around here with all the houses burned down but coming in the guest cottage you you seem to have put a fair amount of priority in uh, beautifying it and furnishing your environment with what you could salvage from the house little little statue here or something like this and also uh, with certain decoration and, and you've, you've got plants outside now already. You know, it, seems, it doesn't seem like a very high priority thing to put time into. <laughs> yeah. So why do you do that? And what is the reason that you prioritize that? And then perhaps we can touch on some of the other uh, strategies that you were outlining as well. Yeah. Well, to me, there's a sanity uh, to be found in um, the mundane, right? But, and... That particular sanity, that's always been something that I put a lot of uh, attention on. And and beauty, as I said, it's very important to me, having an environment that holds me and that's conducive to having to do the quite brutal work I have to do. And so it's a it's a combination of making the space livable and and functional so that i can actually function optimally uh, and and also to create a place uh, where my nervous system can relax and where things are in a place it's orderly 
it's organized, it's pleasing to the eye. And like you said, there are a few of the outside statues that survived and I brought them over and I uh, put flowers with them and I bought flowers, even though it's the middle of winter, even in California, there's not much available. I bought the five flowering shrubs I found at the garden center and for Christmas uh, planted them and put them outside the door. So the first thing I see when I come from the destruction of next door are beautiful flowers, are camellias and geraniums. And that particular activity of uh, mundane yet necessary um, house preparation makes it so I can do all the other stuff. And, you know, ironically, uh, and I told you this before, uh, I now live under a mulberry tree that loses leaves like crazy right now. So I'm sweeping and I'm sweeping specifically with the purpose of emptying out and emptying my mind and, um, um, you know, doing the activity that I was trained to do in my early training, which is just emptying out through through the sweeping and has lots and lots and lots of leaves. So it's an everyday thing. And I've developed a, a kind of routine in the morning. I wake up very early right now. I go out once I've done my lists and my nonlinear and I had a cup of tea and I sit and I have a second cup of tea while the sun comes up and then I sweep and then I start my day. And that's been very um, good and very useful. And it's a good strategy for me uh, and I think for many other people as well is to do something that um, feels familiar and to turn the attention towards something that's beautiful. And it seems like a, a civilizing your environment has an uplifting effect on the mind. I think it does. You know, I definitely think it does. Um, and sometimes all you can do is civilize your immediate environment <laughs> in certain things, in certain adversities that you face. And of course, we're talking about you know the, these fires and so on. But I mean, yeah. it's applicable as why we're yeah. having this conversation. Many other things. Yeah. And sometimes you, you are a bit powerless to, yeah. to really tackle the thing itself. Yeah. But there's, there's perhaps something in your environment you can change or. Civilized. Well, like uh, uh, Professor Jordan Peterson says, whom you turned me on to, uh, clean up your room, or you know, and and that's very very true. If you can't create an environment in your immediate, um, you know, I mean, just vicinity, you can't do anything else. You certainly can't change the world and have a really messy room. You know, I think uh, there's some amazing clips where he speaks about that. And that's, of course, also a concept that's uh, employed in a lot of different uh, traditions and certainly in my lineage, Vashtu, you know, the proper placement of things um, in space so that your nervous system can relax is very, very important. And it's certainly been mainstay of um, my sanity for many years as you know when we travel together I have to arrange my place no matter where we are in an Airbnb or whatever in a way that my system can relax and when my system relaxes I can align and I can get stuff done yeah some of the things I've seen you do are you know you have a little travel altar with a couple of small items there that you you place, and you're not you know redecorating these Airbnbs. Not not like that. <laughs> little touch here, little touch Except there. Except for that time in Australia when I completely redid a bookshelf. Well, they were terribly <laughs> yeah. out of order. Yeah. You didn't alphabetize them, did you? Just, no, just no. I time. just I just uh, put them straight, and uh, I think I color coded them a tiny little bit so that they were pleasing. <laughs> <laughs> to the eye <laughs> but mostly I just put them from laying down to standing mm. up and the, the Vashtu is the is the um, sort of could, could we say Indian Feng Shui sort of idea that's yeah. guided less by rules and more by it's guided less by math you know proper Feng Shui when done properly requires the birth date of the person and the birth date of the house and it's it's very very mathematical the way it's traditionally done of course people now just hang a few crystals in a corner and you know red scrolls on the doors and stuff but in the in the vashtu traditions it also depends there's more you know astronomically um, geared and but it's more about the the placement in space and 
that's a that's a definite application of uh, tidy up your room, you know, clean up your environment. And it's guided by feeling, isn't it? It's much more in the way I was taught and the way I teach it and the way we've taught it is uh, is um, creating a space that's conducive to the activity that you want to perform in there. So if people at home wanted to do a bit of this Vashtru in the, in the immediate environment in which they're listening, <laughs> what would you say to them the first couple of steps? What should they be doing? Well, it depends on the person's system, right? But in general, clearing and cleaning is the first step, meaning uh, decluttering, um, making neat stacks of papers or books, finding some things that you find beautiful and arranging them in a way that is pleasing. And that could be, you know, found objects. It could include shells or candles or, you know, postcards or whatever people have, but creating cleanliness and, and order, but also uh, creating beauty. And that can be done on a desk or, um, you know, in your car even. Mm. Throw away shit is a good way to start, meaning stuff that's no longer needed or stuff that's just laying there because nobody wanted to go outside and throw it in the trash. Yeah, and what about some of those other practices that you were talking about? You know, you're talking about meditation, you know, how have you applied that? You're talking about journaling, you're talking about dream work. Mm -hmm. Perhaps you could outline just roughly what you've been, how you've been using those strategies. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I can go through them one by one. So uh, an important one for me, and that's not always true for everyone, but in general, water is really good for the nervous system. So even if you're not in an extreme disaster zone situation, most people at the end of the day are pretty uh, stressed out and um, overwhelmed and overloaded. Mm -hmm. So the stepping down from daily activity to nighttime activity, whatever that means to people, is an important process. And water certainly aids that process, either in the form of a bath or a shower or a swim uh, or a cold dip, you know, different people have different ways of, of doing it. So I use the bath as a transition from the doing part of the day to the non-doing and releasing and relaxing part of the day. So I have a bath and I have a bath without um, reading uh, Facebook or, you know, Instagram. I've completely done away with social media because I just don't have enough available attention right now and as you know because you had to pick up the slack I also didn't do emails for the first two or three weeks uh, because it was it took too much away from the thing that I had to do and took too much mental energy but in general I try to have a bath without any reading or scrolling uh, so that my system can calm down and the water helps the nervous system uh, relax of course and then from there, I do some nonlinear to release whatever I could feel. So, of course, the moment you step down, the um, areas of tension or pain or trauma amplify. You talk about that a lot in the uh, ambient noise level. So, um, which, you know. Uh, well, basically, the, and when you relax, everyone knows that feeling. You know, you sit down at the end of the day and you suddenly realize how tired you are, so for instance. Right. Or, or well, how much your shoulders ache. Etc. Yeah. yeah, because your mind was so focused on the activity. Um, so that when you do relax enough, you start to feel what's underneath all the activity. And it can, it can make that, what is there, feel louder. Mm. The pain, you know, there's the tension in the shoulders. It seems louder than it was before. Yeah. And it's not necessarily got any more tense. It's just that actually you quieten down to the point where you can feel, feel it, it suddenly. Yeah. Right, yeah. So... Whatever shows up when I have the bath, I then work with with the nonlinear movement formally. And then um, I sit. And uh, when I say I sit, you know, I'm not a hardcore meditator like you are in, you know, in, in most of your daily activity. You meditate a lot more than I do. But I find it useful to just sit right, without focus on anything or do breath practice or visualize or any of any of the things I've been taught or things that 
you teach and I've learned from you, I just sit uh, the way you originally introduced me to just sitting. And I just allow whatever goes through my mind, and that's usually a lot, to unwind itself. And I just wait till it unwinds. And there's, a, there's usually, sometimes it takes a long time, even after nonlinear, where when I start sitting, my mind actually becomes a lot more active than when I start moving. So I just sit and I wait till the mind activity slows down. And uh, when I feel that the mind activity slows down, then my body starts coming online, you know, in, in a different way. Then meditation becomes quite blissful, my body becomes very um, relaxed and open and warm and it's pleasurable. Um, and at that point, I can start having internal uh, motion, right? So I can feel my nadis and my, you know, my channels and, and all of those kind of things. And at that point, I then usually go to bed and I just lay there and I feel you know, the central channel and I relax and, and then eventually that will lead to sleep. I haven't done any formal dream practice, so I'm not going for lucid, uh, even though a lot of my dreams are lucid. I just allow, you know, the theme to run through me, and it's always the same theme, and it's very unpleasant. And uh, I often wake up, you know, with a little bit of fight or flight. And at that point, I journal, and I'll work with whatever shows up in the in the dream and then I do some non-linear and see that I can release it as much as I can and then I uh, you know just write whatever comes up and that could be a combination of things from the dream and things that I want to intend for that day or uh, you know questions that came up in the dream or things I'm working with so it can be a variety of things I've also started uh, writing in the sense that I still, I would like to add a little bit about this experience to the book that's, uh, you know, being finished right now and uh, The Wild Woman's Way and uh, we'll go to the publisher in about three weeks with the final, hopefully the final edit. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm working on verbalizing some of the things we're talking about as a chapter in the book. Not the book, but just a chapter in the book. And then I go and uh, I uh, dry brush and then I have a cold shower. And then I do the, you know, the list making and then my mm. day starts. So those are some of the strategies I think that are useful, uh, certainly useful for me, but useful in general. Right? Engagement with the body, um, both in the realms of self-care, like the dry brushing and moisturizing and bringing it back to the body and caring for the body in a time that doesn't really call for that instinctively. It'll be easy to overlook it. Yeah. And then your body sort of starts to break down underneath and yeah, you can't go on. Exactly. You know, it's interesting, you know, I'm hearing you're combining this bodily care as well as working with the body with movement and so on to release the accumulated stress, trauma and so on of, of, the, of the tough time. And also, your some of those practices are uh, psychological in nature. Mm-hmm. You know, dreaming. Uh, dreaming is uh, among its many functions. Is is that part of sleep? Just like some of the sleep, you restore the body, healing the body, and so on. Dreaming is part of the psychological integration process. And uh, when you're having dreams, having nightmares, and this sort of thing, it's it's actually part of that is an integration of what's going on. So to give a bit of sort of space and friendliness towards the bad dreams mm-hmm. and the, the stressful themes and to, mm-hmm. and to realize actually this is part of the integration of my mind. This is part of, of that process and welcoming it in a certain mm-hmm. sense. Being friendly with it is very good. And the writing out of things, thoughts, may, you know, keeping a bit of a dream diary and writing out thoughts. And of course, you're going to organize some of this into... Uh, there's a chapter in your in your upcoming book that also has the sense of getting the narrative straight, reflecting on it, aligning yeah. some of the psychologically the situation, and um, you know, getting your your mind should we say around the thing, yeah. and, and orienting yourself towards it, and that's very uh, very useful strategy. 
for any sort of stressful situation, for any I kind of adversity so. or in general. Yeah, I think so. And I, it's certainly something that um, I've told other people to do right over the years. Oh. And it has, a, it has an interesting effect also because, of course, I'm not the first person who's lost everything no, right? no. In, in a fire or otherwise. Uh, there's whole uh, regions of the world where people have lost not only their homes, but their lives, the lives of their children, right? They're mm-hmm. fleeing, all of those kind of things. And certainly, you know, we, we this year spent quite a bit of time on lineage and liberation, right? We taught it, what, five times mm-hmm. uh, within a year and a half or so. And certainly the... Uh, the epigenetic aspect and the the familial aspect of, you know, wars. I mean, you know, my ancestors lost everything in wars uh, and probably over many, many, many hundreds of years lost everything in wars. But even, I mean, my mother, my grandmother, on grandparents on both sides lost everything in World War Two and World War One as well. So the the working with the archetypal themes of loss, um, devastation, fire, right? I mean, particularly in my lineage, fire and the, you know, Kali, which we can talk about a little bit in a moment because that was quite interesting. But the the burning away, the throwing things in the fire, uh, you know, of course, in, in the lineage aspect, the, you know, my my grandparents lost everything in bombings and fires and, and stuff. So there is a there's an archetypal um, and familial aspect that's good to keep in mind so it doesn't become so crunched down to poor me because of course I have poor me moments you know I mean who wouldn't but there's a there's a widening of that poor me into a understanding of the archetype right uh, and the, the storytelling and the the lore uh, of women, in my case, since I'm a woman, but humans, but I'm, I'm, I'm feeling specifically women having lost everything, right? I lost uh, dogs, which is like children to me, but other women have lost children in wars and are losing children in wars and, you know, to all kinds of things. So the, um, the engagement with that's very fruitful. It's very painful, but it's very fruitful. And interestingly enough, the insurance adjuster who came in, in something like this, you get assigned for by your insurance an adjuster. It's called a catastrophic loss adjuster. So they're special people. They fly in from the Midwest and they put up in hotels here and they get five or six cases assigned each. And my insurance adjuster was an incredibly lovely, kind and patient man, I was, I mean, I was really touched and surprised because he was so both matter of fact, but also um, compassionate. And he was nothing like I expected. I expected, you know, somebody to come and try and tear it all down and not pay or, you know, I mean, I don't know yet what the insurance is going to do, but he was a very lovely man. And I said to him, we sat there and he asked me all kinds of questions of what the house looked like, because of course, there's nothing left, right? So I said to him at some point, well, you only get to see destruction, right? He's been in Katrina and, you know, like all these horrible devastations. So you're a little bit like a, a pathologist. You're in the morgue. You only see the dead bodies. Right? I was kind of making a joke about it. And he said, he said, yeah, it's true. You know, I only see that the absolute devastation. And then he said... Um, but you'd be surprised how resilient people are. And um, and the way he said it was uh, was very touching right? because uh, he probably sees the very worst in people, but he also sees people going, okay, well, I mean, there's nothing left. What now, right? And of course, when you have insurance, however minimal the insurance is, there is somebody who uh, at least supports you so to speak regardless of what you think insurance and all of that but just somebody saying yes you lost all of this and yes you did uh, pay us every month and so we're going to give you a certain amount of money and I don't know how much it's going to be and if it's enough to rebuild and all of that but you know that knowledge that there is some help uh, in in that form he he was talking about how that gives people the boost to continue 
and um, I think that's that's the part of the dream work and the archetypal work I'm working with is the resilience piece and the just you know you stand up you dust yourself off and on you go yeah one of the interesting things about this um, the aftermath of this incident here in Ojai is there has been there have been polarizing responses in the community but generally it's it's, it's very interesting to hear uh, and you've told me the stories and I've seen it firsthand uh, the pulling together of the community mm. and, and actually how people have uh, been helping each other and supporting each other yeah. and going out of the way to, to do that and of course there's also there have also been people sort of hoarding doing <laughs> all sorts of other strange things but you know but <laughs> looting we had the looting yeah exactly yeah you know and, and you've you know you've received many many messages of support and more than just messages actually in, in, in other cases you know real support from people in all kind of ways um, and Perhaps as we come to the end of, of our time, can you talk a bit about what's, what that's meant? Mm. Because often our loved ones or our dear friends are in, facing a very hard time. Yeah. Something you can't fix. You can't sort of ride in and fix the situation. Maybe it's not a fixable situation. Yes. And you want to help. Yeah. But you want to support them somehow. And some people, afraid of making it worse, don't say anything. Other people ride in and make it worse. <laughs> and then there are those... Who can actually help? Who yes. can actually support? So, what is it that makes um, that actually helps? Yeah. You know, what can people do generally for those who are in hard time? So, I think the first thing that anyone can do for someone who finds themselves in some shocking or you know uh, surprising situation is to just acknowledge that it's bad, uh, just to say, "Wow, that is bad," or "This sucks," or "This is terrible," because one of the worst things. Um, and I remember this also from James's death, when James died, is when people immediately bypass their original feelings to make it better. Because you can't make it better. And part of grieving the thing is to not make it better, but to allow it to be what it is, whatever that is. And so the acknowledgement of it being a bad situation goes a long way. And then, and this is hard for most people, most people want to do then something that makes them feel like they made a difference or that makes it better for them. So it depends on the person, but I would suggest not only from how I'm built, but also from my clinical practice is to not necessarily soothe people. A lot of people have offered to hug me or touch me and 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 they're going yeah yeah here it's better you know you don't actually want to um, interrupt the process of grieving and people grieve in different ways and sometimes it's not appropriate to hug somebody because they might start crying and they might it might not be the moment to start crying because they have to be functioning they have to talk to a doctor or an insurance adjuster or things like that so to not impose bodily help I I very much appreciated it when people would say, can I give you a hug? And I could say, no, I actually don't want to be touched right now. Um, and, then, and then other people just randomly groping me, essentially, to make themselves feel better. So I think um, respecting people's space and their level of shock or trauma or processing ability is, is a very uh, good gift you can give somebody. Offering help without budding in is very useful. To say, if there's something I can do, let me know. I'm here. Uh, when the time comes, blah, 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 I'm here. You know, uh, put me on a list for when there's something to do. Or call me when you need a ride to the doctor. or Whatever it is, that's useful. It's not useful when you have to manage other people's emotions and the need to make themselves feel feel better in addition to whatever you're having to do. Things that were surprising and very lovely was a few people took the initiative to do things that I would have never asked for because I don't ask for help very easily anyway. First of all, because I'm well-resourced in my mind and also because I go get one-track mind. So one of the nicest things um, somebody did is they texted me and said, uh, my husband's on the way up with some food. She asked up front, she said, would, you know, 
I'm, I would like to make you food, would you take it? And I said, yes, begrudgingly, but I said, yes. And then he showed up with two bags with really beautifully prepared food, properly portioned, labeled, little things with it, totally thought out so that I didn't have to even think. I just opened packages and heated stuff. And that was really lovely. And um, yeah, very touching. So, and then somebody else sent some clothes by that she picked up at a store when I literally only had my work clothes, right? And and it was like a very cozy pair of sweatpants and, and some very practical t-shirts. And um, she sent me one of her old um, jackets so that I be, would be warm. And that was really, really lovely because it was not, not necessarily something I thought I needed, but it helped. It was like a, somebody thought, what does she actually need and provided that without me having to think what I needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so those kind of little things really made a difference. And then, of course, within the community, and we talked a little bit about that earlier, it was incredible uh, to feel how everyone was giving of their resources. And our direct neighbors and also the people up here in the valley I mean, everybody just gave off their resources and to everyone each to each other and everyone just stopped by. And one of the beautiful things in the beginning, which I would not have thought would have been a good thing because I'm very private, but people would just show up and people would show up with uh, extra water or a blanket or uh, dog food. And then, uh, of course, uh, somebody here in the community organized a relief center where people could get tools and face masks and things like that. So in general, as a community, it's brought us much, much closer. And we've always had a very good functioning community. But in that particular moment, you could see the generosity of people, both in spirit and in actual things. And generators showed up, um, charger cables, food, water, drink, lots of red wine was consumed because that's what was needed and people would just talk to each other and everywhere we went and everywhere I go, we talk about it because it's useful for people to talk about it and process it and have somebody else who's gone through that experience because shared experience is very important in any of those situations, which is why in urban areas, and, and for many people it's the internet, like chat rooms, forums, uh, self, you know, help groups of all kinds are useful because you're dealing with other people who've been there either at the same time as you or before you. And that's been uh, very useful for me and I know it's been very useful for many of my clients, everything from people having lost you know, babies, stillborns, you know, all kinds of things where you find yourself in a very odd situation where it's useful to speak with other people who have shared experience. In the UK, we have the uh, tradition of making a cup of tea. Yes. No matter how bad the news is, the first thing you do is you go make a cup of tea, or you make a cup of tea for the person while they're <laughs> processing their yes. These sorts yeah. of acts of, of, of kindness and companionship. Um, do seem to go an awful long way in, yeah. in uplifting the spirit. That's wonderful to hear about that in the community. Well, we're out of time. Before we, you know, before we sign off, um, is there anything you'd like to say on the matter? Finally. Well, I mean, for everyone listening, and certainly uh, to you as well, and Casey, um, you know, thank you because I've been very supported, and I haven't answered any emails. But for all of those who have sent me emails and messages and Facebook messages. It means a lot to get the support and it's good to hear um, that people are thinking about it and feeling things about it. It's very, very useful, even though I haven't had the space or time to um, thank people. Um, I'm doing that now. Thank you. And like I said to you and Casey, you spend your time off, your, your Christmas vacation, so to speak, manning the ship so we can move on. That meant I could actually put my attention there fully and it means that then, you know, come the new year, I can put my attention fully back into teaching and traveling and creation of all kinds. And that means a lot. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to us getting started again. Great. Well, thank you very <laughs> much for this conversation, Michaela. Thank you. You can find out more about Michaela 
and the workshops she teaches and the workshops that we teach together at uh, www.michaelabohm.com. <laughs>